we have made our way back around to this book, and we are in chapter 10, where we'll be picking up this morning. Now, have you noticed one of the interesting realities that we have observed uh, while studying through the book of Daniel? One of them being uh, this method of revealing, uh, of this divine revelation of God revealing to Daniel the things that he wants Daniel to know about the future was very progressive from one chapter to the next chapter. For example, perhaps you remember this guy right here from Daniel chapter 2. Remember him from all those months gone by? Um, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and the head of gold was that of Babylon, and so we had a starting point for where to kind of jump in in terms of history and our time and space with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then it went to the, the, uh, the breast and arms of silver, the Medes, the Persians. It went then to the belly and thigh of brass, which was the Grecian Empire, and then the, the Roman Empire, the legs of iron. And in this dream, we saw a progression of world powers that was going to be on planet Earth, and God had a plan and a use for them. And one would have probably expected um, that when you get down here to this fifth kingdom, down here to the toes of this statue, that as each of these had flowed consecutively, that probably the most logical conclusion would be that the next one would flow chronologically and consecutively as well. But it didn't. And as a result of that, we've now experienced... Um, a gap in what we call world history and church history. And it's this gap right here that's referred to as the church age. So I just kind of put Nebuchadnezzar's dream right over here. And we were expecting to see this fifth world power as mentioned down here in the toes. Remember it said about these toes in the days of those kings, plural, it made reference to another coming kingdom that would that would have seceded, followed on the heels of the Roman Empire, but we never have seen that in world history. And so we, we've had about 1,700 years from the time of the end of the uh, Roman Empire in 1453, which I've got marked somewhere along here. I just kind of arbitrarily threw that in there. But we have yet to see the, uh, the consolated uh, world powers of the Daniel 244 that we would have seen here that we were expecting to see. And so we've developed this gap concept, which the New Testament refers to in Ephesians chapter 3 as the church age. And the Apostle Paul clearly articulates that, and I wanted to show you this again. We looked at this several weeks ago, but it's important to understand from a New Testament perspective this idea of a mystery that was yet revealed from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament had information, that, as we saw in this dream, that just flowed from one to the next. Again, even after, even after this kingdom, there's another kingdom that's coming. It's a rock cut without hands. Remember that one? So the Apostle Paul tells us um, of this mystery in Ephesians chapter 3 and in other places in the New Testament as well. But just follow along as I read this passage quickly. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation 
there is made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. And so this is why when we go back into Daniel's, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there, there was no concept in here of this mystery age, of this church age. Clearly, the Apostle Paul says that it was not made known to other generations, not to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed, now progressive revelation, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what the administration... This word in the Greek is also where we get our word dispensation. And to bring to light what is the dispensation or this administration of the mystery. And what's the mystery? The mystery is the church. From the Old Testament perspective, the church was a mystery. It was yet to be revealed and it has been revealed now as the Apostle Paul has clearly made very plain. The mystery which for all ages, this mystery which for all ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. The manifold wisdom of God previously was made known through the nation of Israel, through the giving of law, the Torah, etc., the prophets, the promises. Now through the church, through Jesus Christ, through the inauguration of this new covenant that we even rehearsed here today, this mystery of God is being revealed through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ every Lord's Day and every time one of his kids goes out into the world to make disciples of all nations, meaning you live your normal life, you're a, you have a tent-making job, whatever it is you do to put bread on the table, you do that, and when you're out and about living your life, you also recognize that you're one of his kids and you have a mission to accomplish. That's bigger than just simply providing bread for your table, though that's important. There's something else that's also extremely important, and it's this manifold wisdom of God that's being made known through you, his church. And it's being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In our passage in Daniel, interestingly enough, we're going to talk about some of these rulers right here and authorities that are in the heavenly places. And in the book of Daniel chapter 10, we're going to see specifically that these rulers and authorities in heavenly places are trying to prevent the progressive revelation and the continued revelation of God's wisdom that is of the ultimate coming of the age to come. And so this is a very insightful passage that we have before us. Let me finish this real quick. Verse 11 this was in accordance, notice this, all of this mystery of the church hidden in, hidden in God, not revealed to, to people in ages past. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. God doesn't do things in happenstance or, by, or just by, by chance or luck. 
God has ordained that which will come to pass, and we see this taking place in the flow of human history. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 is one of those big picture realities that helps us get locked in. Sometimes we live in, since we, we live in the here and now, right? We live very linear lives. We live from one moment to the next. But when we read a passage like Daniel chapter 2 and we see that dream of Nebuchadnezzar, we recognize that God is doing something in the heavens that's so far and so high beyond our comprehension that he gives us little moments of just peering into that and uh, giving us a taste of that glory divine that's yet to come. So it was according to his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, the building of his church, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. Paul has ongoing tribulations, persecutions of those within the church on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So again, when we look at this little time frame right here, Ephesians 3 clearly articulates this gap that there was a mystery. History was flowing. We would have expected to have seen this world power following the Roman world power right over here, but we didn't. And now we know why, because we have progressive revelation. The Roman Empire ended right about here. I'm, again, I'm just dropping that in there. And here we are, right here. And again, I'm just dropping that in there. That's why I put a question mark on it. I don't, I don't know where we're at in this, in this flow of human history exactly. And when this, this constellation of world powers, this one world government that's going to be forming, I don't know when that's going to take place. So I just throw up a question mark in there. But we, I do, what I do know is that we're still living in this church age, that's what we know. And this is what we have seen clearly in Daniel chapter 2. And so this progressive nature of the book of Daniel. So when you get from Daniel chapter 2 and you, get, and you continue reading and you get to Daniel chapter 7, one of the things that we see in Daniel chapter 7 is a progression of revelation. Wait a second, I missed my, there's my mark right there. So I meant to go from here to here and I added in a few, oh, here's why. Here's why right here, you ready? So after that fifth power, we also see in Daniel's chapter 2, we see a rock. Remember the rock that was cut without hands? That smashes the feet. Well, here's my picture of this rock flying in from heaven. Isn't that pretty cool? I liked it. And so I just kind of, I inserted it right here. And you can kind of see, I, I kind of, uh, can I do that? Yeah, I can. Look at that. I kind, of, I kind of brought in a few of the things we've been previously looking at just for grins. I know you like my charts so much. So I kind of just brought those in here. But this second coming of Christ and Daniel's vision of this rock that comes in and smashes the world powers is going to happen right down here at the end of the day of the Lord. Okay? And so that's some of the revelation that just Nebuchadnezzar's dream gives us. It's really pretty amazing. Is that not amazing? I'm amazed. When I read of predictive prophecy... And then you see it playing out on the world scene. I don't know about you, but that's, I find that to be utterly amazing. And then, talking of the progressive nature of Revelation that we see in the book of Daniel, you'll notice right here, we see in Daniel chapter 7, I added it right here and changed the color for us. We see in Daniel 7, more intel with regard to this coming world power that's going to ultimately be smashed by this rock, uh, this 
this kingdom that will be coming from heaven, Jesus Christ at his second coming. And we see in Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 in particular, verses 21 and 22 in particular, this, this uh, revelation of, a, of this little horn. Remember the ten toes of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Well, it correlates with the ten horns on this beast that comes up in Daniel chapter 7. Listen, all of this is online. You can go back and rehearse all of it. It's just so amazing. But we see progressive revelation in Daniel chapter 7, and we get more information with regard to that little horn who is the Antichrist who's going to wage war against the saints of God and overpower them. And then as we continue, we get to Daniel chapter 9. So on the lower portion here, I added chapter 9. So here we have Daniel 9, and we've got the seven weeks, the 62 weeks, the one week, all these things that we've been looking at that ultimately usher into this right here, the age to come. And so we see progressive revelation progressively from chapter 2 to chapter 7 to chapter 9. What do you think we're going to see when we get to chapter 10 through chapter 12 in Daniel? I'm setting it up very obviously. We're going to see more progressive revelation, more details with regard to the time of the coming of this eternal state, the age to come. Chapters 10 through 12 of the book of Daniel, is it's, it's a whole, it's one vision. Chapter 10 is kind of like the intro to this vision. Chapter 11 is the the meat of the prophecy. And chapter 12 is the conclusion of that. So chapters 10, 11, and 12 are the totality of the last vision that God gives us, his church, that he gave through Daniel regarding the coming of the end of this age and the beginning of the age to come. And we're going to get more detailed and specific information regarding that, as has been the case of God's revelation to Daniel thus far. So what we're going to try to accomplish here today is we are going to try to accomplish getting through chapter 10, which is the setting up. It's just the the context that sets up the chapter 11, which is the prophecy that gives more detailed information regarding the end of the world as we know it. So notice chapter 10, verse 1. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. So where do we see that we are right here in chapter 10? It says, The third year of Cyrus. Now, perhaps you remember uh, previously in chapter 9, it said it was the first year of Cyrus when Daniel in chapter 9 started getting into his nose in the book and understanding from the prophet Jeremiah that 70 years were decreed for his people in their time of deportation. And here we see it's the third year of Cyrus. So we know that another two years later, another revelation is coming to Daniel who, it says right here, was named Belshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So two years later, after Cyrus told those Judeans who had been in captivity that they could return back to their homeland of Jerusalem and there in Judea and start rebuilding the temple, we see two years later that, that... A lot of them are still here. And Daniel is saying that he's now in the third year of King Cyrus. 
And perhaps, we don't know definitively, but perhaps one of the reasons that these individuals, many of whom did not go back, is because they had kind of grown comfortable with their surrounding conditions. And I don't mean to imply that it's somewhat akin to the, you know, the frog in the kettle, that when you put a frog in the kettle, it's happy to be in the contented water that it's in, but as you start to turn the heat up, it doesn't really perceive that, and eventually you boil the frog. I'm not saying that after 70 years of living in a paganized culture, away from Yahwehism and the worship of the one true and living God, that many of them had become comfortable. I don't know definitively, but in the book of Ezra, it tells us that, and it gave, a, it gave us a very specific number, it tells us that 42,600 of them did go back. Now, we may initially think that 42,600 is a very large number, right? I mean, that's a lot of people, but in comparison to the totality of their population, I think we discovered that there were a lot of individuals who perhaps either were disheartened, perhaps they'd become ensconced in the society in which they lived, perhaps they'd become, become comfortable with what was, perhaps they had even fallen away from their desire to be worshipers of Yahweh. I don't know definitively, but there was a, there's a case to be made as to why um, two years later Daniel is still feeling somewhat uh, disgruntled with what he is seeing hooves on the ground. Now, from Daniel's perspective, what was Daniel's heart's desire? Clearly, Daniel was expecting that after the 70 years were fulfilled and God was going to let his people go out of captivity back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, to the rebuilding of the temple, back to a place where Yahweh could be recognized and honored and worshipped and praised, I think Daniel's great expectation was that that was going to happen. But here we're seeing that perhaps that hasn't been the case, and we're going to see Daniel doing something that we are very accustomed to see Daniel doing, and that is praying. In Daniel, in chapter 10, in the setting up of this vision and the, and the foretelling of this vision that he received, that clearly it says that he understood, he understood the message, and he had a clear understanding of this vision. Chapter 11 is when he's going to start articulating that. But we're going to see that Daniel, in the process of coming to, to grips with the reality that things aren't playing out exactly the way he perhaps thought they would, he turns to God in prayer. Let me just preface by saying, have any of you ever been in a place in life where things weren't turning out exactly like you perhaps thought that they would as you read God's word and you thought for certain this must be the way God's going to do things and then anybody ever been there I think Daniel's been there and what we see with Daniel is when Daniel gets there what does Daniel do well he does what the rest of us do we start saying well God must not love me if God really loved me he wouldn't allow this to happen right and so I think since I have come to the conclusion that perhaps God doesn't love me the way I thought that God loved me, I'm going to stop spending less time with God. I'm going to move away from reading God's word. I'm going to move away from praying to God because clearly he doesn't love me. He didn't, have, he didn't allow things to work out exactly like I thought they were going to work out. So the obvious conclusion is I need to just move away from this God, right? Now, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but a lot. But that's what we do, and why do we do that? Well, we're going to, we're going to talk about some of this here because... Even in our passage here, we're going to see that there are spiritual forces at work. And then we're going to connect that over to Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 6. Spiritual forces of darkness that are at work to try to thwart the plans of God. To try to blunt the hearts of the people of God that are trying to live for God. And, and Paul refers to this 
activity as somehow these flaming arrows, these fiery darts that get shot somehow. I don't know exactly how that works. But I think we've all experienced that, right? Like that just little scenario I just walked through. I think we've all experienced that in some form or fashion to another. And it's easy to fall prey to the deceptive voice of the culture and of the adversary. And perhaps that's why only 42,000, was it 46,000? Maybe that's why only that many went back and the, and the majority of them stayed behind. They perhaps had become convinced that it wasn't really all that necessary to rebuild a place of worship for Yahweh. Don't know definitively, but what we're going to see is that Daniel turns back to God again in prayer. Now, before I leave verse 1, notice this right here. So, this message came to Daniel. This message, the message, it was true. He understood it. He had an understanding of its vision. But it says right here, it was one of great conflict. This revelation that he's going to get to in chapter 11 and delineate on is one of great conflict. And in some translations, it might even insert the, war, the word war or something along that lines because it's, that's the concept behind the word that's used there for conflict. It's of hostilities. It's of mass collateral damage upon human life. Which, as we've been studying thus far in the book of Daniel and over the last three weeks when we took our excursus and looked somewhat at the timing of the rapture question, we see from a premillennial perspective there is going to be what? There's going to be great conflict. There's going to be a time of great human loss uh, in the future. And this vision, this message that Daniel receives that he articulates in chapter 11 is of that very nature. And it's not going to surprise you that when we get to chapter 11, guess what you're going to see? You're going to see the information that Daniel speaks of in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul picks up on and he inserts and utilizes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 with regard to the man of lawlessness. We may have thought that perhaps the information that we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4 regarding the man of lawlessness was just somehow new intel, new revelation that God had given to Paul. But we're going to discover that same information embedded into Daniel chapter 11. And so we know where the Apostle Paul, under inspiration, got that information to begin with. We'll get there. That's, that's still to come. That's still ahead of us. But we're tipped off right here that this message, this vision that we're going to see in chapter 11 is one of great conflict, one of great human suffering. Now notice verses 2 and 3. It says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food nor meat or wine into my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three weeks were completed. So again, what would cause Daniel's heart to be this concerned? It says he mourned for three entire weeks. Now, when you think about Daniel again and where he's at in his life, Daniel's probably in his mid to upper 80s at this point. And so for a man in his mid to upper 80s to, to fast and pray and to mourn for 
three entire weeks for 21 days. There had to be some things that were really disconcerting to Daniel and moving his heart in that direction. And, and in my estimation, it seems to me that the best connection and conclusion we can come to is that under the leadership of Zerubbabel, there was just the 42,600 Jews that had left their occupation, their, their time there in captivity, and chose to go back. It seems that perhaps Daniel was beleaguering that reality. We see this in Ezra 4.24. We know that when they got there, that they faced great opposition. And it says, then the work on the house of God in Ezra 4.24, the work on the house of God, which is what Cyrus set them free to go back to rebuild as the house of God, the temple of God in Jerusalem, ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. So it seems that perhaps Daniel was mourning over the fact that there was a, a small number of his people that went back, and perhaps even more so to the fact that the building on the temple of God had come to a stop. And so Daniel, uh, doing what Daniel does and doing what we ought to do, he turned to God in prayer. And you see the earnestness with which Daniel turned to God in prayer. Do you see that? I mean, when a man stops bathing and putting ointment on himself for three entire weeks for the sole purpose of not growing um, comfortable, sometimes they put on sackcloth and ashes, as we saw Daniel do previously. In this occasion, it says that he did not anoint himself. That would have been some kind of an anointing of probably some perfumes or oils or such that would have given him an, a more pleasant aroma. Daniel was wafting in, this, in his own stench, if you will, after three solid weeks demonstrating before God, not that if I, just, if I just do this before God, if I don't eat and I don't bathe and I smell really bad, then God's going to move. No, it was an expression of the attitude of Daniel's heart that was put on display. And we're going to see that God responded as a result of the condition of Daniel's heart. But we're also going to see that something very unique happens in that response. Notice verse 4 in Daniel chapter 10. It says, on the twenty fourth day of the first month while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Ephaz. Verse 6, his body was also like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, verse 7, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, <clears throat> a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. Verse 8, so I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly parlor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. So this concept of deep sleep is probably not what we think of when we think of REM sleep. You get into that deepest level of sleep. This is probably more like a somewhat of a trance, somewhat of a fainting, sleep-like posturing, 
where when Daniel saw and heard the words of this divine being, he was face down to the ground with nothing to say. Now, one of the questions that is often asked at this point in Daniel chapter 10 is, who is this man that's described with such poetic language? Who is this man? And if we were to, if we had the time to, and I'm not going to make the time, but if I did and took you over to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 16, you're going to see a description of a man over there that's almost exactly identical to the presentation that Daniel has relayed to us right here. The only distinction between the two is that it was something dealing with the, the hair and what was happening with the hair of the one in the book of Revelation. Everything else is pretty much an exact representation. And what we know from the book of Revelation is that who John saw right there is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So we know that the Apostle John in the book of Revelation was having a, a vision of the uh, risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so a lot of a lot of people will make that connection and say that this was a pre-incarnate vision that Daniel had of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it was within this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that perhaps the communication, it, because he says, I heard the sound of his words, that perhaps the communication of this horrific vision of great conflict that we saw in verse 1 was foretold to Daniel from this vision of Christ. Now, I can't declare definitively that this is indeed a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, but through deduction and through allowing Scripture to teach Scripture and making those kinds of connections, it seems that this would be the best observation that we could perhaps make here. Now, there are some who want to uh, articulate that this is the, uh, the, a vision of an angel that Daniel sees here, the, the angel that's going to then touch him when you get to chapter 10, verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me. So, and as, the, and as this, these verses continue to lay out, you can see that the one that touched him and is now speaking to him is indeed an angelic being. And so some want to articulate that the vision previously was just the vision of that angel. So I'm not going to make a, a big kerfuffle out of that issue at all because ultimately it doesn't make a lot of difference. He was given a vision. He's going to tell us about that vision and that it was of great conflict. He's going to tell us that when we get to chapter 11. So whether he got that from an angel, I think it was Gabriel who gave Daniel a lot of information in chapter 9 previously. So perhaps this is a vision of Gabriel, but he sure seems to look a whole lot like the Lord Jesus Christ over in Revelation chapter 1. So perhaps in this account, on this account, it was Christ who, in a pre-incarnate vision to Daniel, gave Daniel this vision. I don't know. However, let's fight over it and get divided. You ready? No, I'm just kidding. Um... The most important part is to understand the, the flow of the vision that Daniel has seen. Now, in my personal opinion, I do believe that he saw a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. 
And so when you get to chapter 10, verse 10 right here, I think that there is a division of personages. That the vision he saw was of the pre-incarnate Christ. And it seems to me best to understand when you get to verse 10 that this is making reference to an angel now, not the Lord himself, who reaches out and touches Daniel and strengthens him. Remember, he was left like a dead man on his face with his face to the ground in a deep sleep, in a trance-like place. And this hand that touches him set him, aroused him, set him trembling on his hands and his knees. And is going to start bringing Daniel back to a place of uprightness and making certain that he knows he needs to stand firm in face of the things that God has revealed, has revealed to him. And it was um, the great professor... Dr. John Walvard and uh, my good friend Ben Harmon sent me a picture this week of the Walvard Center there at Dallas Seminary. I uh, supposing you were visiting campus or just making a drive by. And so he sent me a picture of the Walvard Center, which is the student center there. But John Walvard in his commentary said in verse 10, Daniel records that in his extremity a hand touched him, raising him sufficiently so that now he was resting on his hands and knees. And that's where we see at the end of verse 10. If the original vision of the theophany or an appearance of God, it is evident that this is another personage, probably an angel. It is said that the angel set me upon my knees, literally translated, shook me up upon my knees. The action was much like arousing one from sleep. And that's the way I take those passages there. Now notice in verse 11 and following, this helps bring, I think, some clarity to this issue. He says in verse 11, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So he goes from being on his hands and knees trembling to now he's standing on his feet trembling. And I don't know about you, but I really, I love verse 11 here a whole lot. Uh, just thinking of our brother Daniel, an aged man, 85 plus. And what do we know about Daniel at 85 plus? He is still a man of God who wants to be used by God. And, and he set his heart to prayer and fasting for 21 days because he was so burdened by the name of Yahweh being made great and the reestablishment of the temple, the place of true worship for God. This 85-plus-year-old man, and God appeared to him, gave him a vision. He dropped like John did, like a dead man in the presence of Christ, beatific pre-incarnate vision. And then an angel appears, rouses him up from that trance-like sleep that he was in and tells him to stand up. And this 85-plus-year-old man stands up yet trembling. I don't know about you, but man, that inspires the heck out of me. If that brother can get up and keep on keeping on, so should I be able to, and so should you. Are you kind of starting to feel a little bit of the grit of this old man? And I don't know about you, but I love grit in anybody. No matter if you're an old man, a young man, an old woman, a young woman, I like grit for God in any person that's willing to live for God in their time and in their culture in a way that's distinctly as a follower of God. How about you? I, and I, so I, <laughs> I love this. 
Stand up, Daniel. And he stands up. I, he says, I stood up. I, man, that, 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 I love that. Mm. Stands up. Verse 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself for your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So from the first day, so when did we know Daniel was in prayer and fasting and this non-bathing mode for 21 days, but from the, from the very beginning of that, Daniel, um, from the first day that you set your heart, and notice what Daniel set his heart to do. He set his heart on understanding. And as I'd mentioned, perhaps things weren't working out exactly the way Daniel had thought that they were going to work out. He's, trying, he's seeking understanding. God, why are things not going the way I thought they were going to go? I read in your book in Jeremiah, 70 years were decreed. That time had come and gone. Cyrus showed up. He said, you people can go back to your land and start rebuilding your temple. And it's not working out quite the way we thought was going to work out. A small portion did go back. They started rebuilding the temple. And then from opposition from the outside... Temple reconstruction stopped. God, what? I thought that you were the sovereign God of heaven and earth who could do whatsoever he pleased, when he pleased, and as he pleased. And this just doesn't seem to be going the way I thought you should have done things. Now, again, just to be fair for Daniel, we find ourselves in this place. But notice, he set his heart on understanding this. He didn't turn from God, he turned to God. He didn't understand why things were going the way he went, so instead of turning from God, he turned to God in a time of fasting, concentrated fasting and prayer and non-bathing for the purpose of understanding. So from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and what? On humbling Yourself before your God. Yeah. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Daniel yet again at 85 plus is demonstrating that all that really matters to him is his heart for God. The greatness of God's name being redounded across the world. And Daniel was anticipating what? He was anticipating that there was going to be a coming kingdom. There was going to be this rebuilding. Because he, he had seen, the, he, had, he, had, he understood Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He had the continued revelation from in chapter 7. He was given the revelation in chapter 9. Daniel was piecing these things together. And he was in great anticipation of something marvelous coming. A kingdom coming. That rock smashing. Taking over the whole world. Things weren't working out that way. So he put his heart to understanding, God, what are you up to? And then he humbled himself before his God. The angel says, Daniel, don't be afraid. God's got this. And from the very first day that you set your heart to do this, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now, I don't know about you, but it sure makes me want to make certain that when I'm living my life and things aren't going quite the way I was hoping that they was going to go, and I've got the good book and I've read the good book, and I'm always saying our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. But when I see that things aren't going quite the way that I was pleasing, 
And then I might start asking God, well, God, you said this or you said that. Why are these things not coming to place? This passage right here really lets me know, Aver, you need to set your heart on understanding the ways of God, which sometimes are beyond your finding out. And being willing to be at peace and to leave room for the Lord. Leave He's, he's brought us this far. Is he going to fail us and let us down? Well, I don't think so. I may not understand the details. I may not understand the timing. People sometimes die tragically younger than we might think they should die, etc. And all these kinds of travails that strike us here on earth. But at the end of the day, when it comes time to understanding such trials and travails and persecutions and hardships and etc., what do we need to do? We need to set our heart to understanding God's ways better and of humbling ourselves before our God, not trying to make him a God into our own making and a God into our own liking who should have done things a certain and a particular way. But for us to say, God, you're in heaven, I'm on earth, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And in acceptance lieth peace. And then that Philippians 4, 7, and 8 passage makes a lot of sense. You can give thanks, can't you? And you learn to give thanks for whatever those circumstances may be. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. These passages could be just pulled out and inserted somewhere in our New Testament so easily. Right? Right. Okay. Well, the, the clock on the wall is telling me, Averett, you've really preached a lot more than you thought you were going to. You thought you were going to get through verse 21. I, I do this often. You know me. But I'm hoping, I'm, so I'm going to just put a, drop a, a pen in it right here. We're going to finish this intro next week. But I'm hoping that you are starting to get a, a, a more of a feel for the mannishness of this man, Daniel. And how even towards the end of his life, he, he hasn't retired. Maybe he's retired from his governmental affairs, but he hasn't retired from his walk with God. <laughs> there's never, there's never a, a place for retirement in our walk with God. We are always ambassadors for Christ as though in chains. Daniel is modeling this for us beautifully. So much we can learn on a personal, applicational level from how we're seeing Daniel Respond from the heart to God in these matters. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to just pick up here when we get to verse 13 next week. And this is where we start getting into some of that spiritual warfare concept stuff that I was telling you about. But we're going to, we're going to get there next week. But I just want to show you one thing. You ready? Just one thing. In verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for... How long was Daniel praying and fasting? Three weeks equals how many days? More on that next week. We'll pick up in verse 13 next week. Listen, folks, we, we're going to have to come to the recognition. And sometimes we live as though spiritual warfare, spiritual realities, uh, we kind of live like that's like hocus pocus kind of stuff. Like that's not even, we see it in the scriptures, but we don't really tend to navigate our lives thinking those kinds of thoughts. We're going to delve into a little bit of that on the latter half of this setting up of this marvelous revelation that Daniel gets in chapter 11. And we're going to kind of parlay that over a little bit with Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual forces in, of darkness. 
So come next week, we'll finish up chapter 1 and setting up this great vision. But there's a lot of application for us as believers as well. So why don't you pray with me?